Okay, well let's uh, start to me this, the message today. So today is actually part two. Part two of a sermon series I started uh, two weeks ago called Biblical Principles for Giving to Those in Need. Or another way of saying it is a biblical theology for giving to those in need. And I want to clarify something I said from two weeks ago when I last spoke. Because the first sermon I did was on giving to those in need during a, a famine or a natural disaster or anything like a, a crisis situation like uh, the Syrian refugee uh, crisis. And there were three lessons in that. One was our priority is to give to the Christian brothers and sisters. Second one was to... Uh, what was it? No. It's not very good. I can't remember my own sermon. Pardon me? I hope the middle name. Yeah. Well, yeah. So that's right. Who to give to, right? The Christian brothers and sisters. How to give. How much. Yeah. How much to give. And that was to give out of our surplus. Uh, out of, uh, determined by our um, monthly income and the reality of the, the finances that we're facing at the time. And the third one was uh, how to disperse it. Giving to people directly so that there's no organizations or middlemen in the way so that money's not getting dispersed and people aren't getting the funds. But in that second lesson about uh, how much to give, I made a statement that I want to clarify because I had a, a question about it. I made the comment, uh, I made this comment based on verse 2 of Corinthians. In verse 2 of Corinthians in chapter 16, he says this, on the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. I made the comment that it's a good idea for us to think in terms of our savings account of, of uh, uh, saving on a regular basis, not just for our own uh, purposes and our own kingdoms, to build our own kingdoms, but to build uh, for future uh, emergencies in terms of taking care of Christian people in the future. Because so there's always disasters and things going on, so it's nice to save with that purpose. I would, I would say this. Clearly the Corinthian church and the Acts church did that. And they did save in increments for future. What we don't know is if they did that as a habit. So I would say this. I think I made it come across as if that's a habit that should be done. I would say from the text we can't say that it's a habit that Christians did this back then. We do know for the circumstances they faced they did save incrementally and made it a habit for a short period of time. However, I still don't think the principle would be a bad idea. That if we considered part of our savings plans in general to always think about people in need and have that as part of our budget, it would be a good idea. So if you were to walk around and saying, well, you know, as a Christian, we have to save for people in need and that's a biblical mandate, that's not true. That'd be a misapplication of this. I would say it's true only in terms of like the context of the crisis that's at hand. However, the principle would still be something good to think about. So I hope that makes sense. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then uh, I did speak on it two weeks ago. And it would make more sense after you listen to it. But that was 1 Corinthians 16, 1 to 4. And chapter, verse 2 was the idea. So I would never say to anybody as a Christian, you know, you guys need to be, as part of your savings, you need to always be savings for, for people in, in, in crises. And, the, and I quote this verse, it'd be a misapplication. I would say it's probably principally good to consider that some of your savings you know, should be considered for future emergencies for people. And of course, if we save regularly, we'll have extra funds to do so. So we're not called on the last minute to pull our, our pocketbooks out to help. Also, uh, two weeks ago, the original intent was to do everything in one sermon. 
that get the biblical theology given to those in need was to be one sermon. And it ended up, uh, it ended up being uh, me last time telling you that I'm going to do it in two because there was too much information. While I was studying again this week, and I realized it's actually have to be done in three. <laughs> I made that call last night um, again as I was doing it. So we're only we're going to be a second part now of a three-part series, which was supposed to be one thing. But when you have a long-winded pastor, that's what you get. Everything gets dragged out and dragged out. Grabbing my wife in a conversation. <laughs> so. So I know that, uh, again, this is a massive topic, and today's not going to be exhaustive. There's going to be things that I, I'm going to have missed out, and it's just my goal today is just to introduce you to some more thinking in terms of giving to people uh, in terms of when they're in need or they're in poverty or who are poor. And this will be part two, again, of a, of a part three series. I'm going to use different scriptures and different uh, uh, things to support uh, my claims, and uh, I'm going to teach it in a way of question format. So we're going to ask a question, answer it, ask a question, answer it. And those answers, by the way, are your lessons. So if you're looking at the end of the sermon, I'm not going to say lesson one, two, three, like I normally do. As I speak, those are the lessons. And so there won't be any summary at the end of the sermon like I normally do. So here's the four questions. Question one, are there any other times outside of natural disasters and famines and so on that we should give to Christians who are poor or in need? Question one. Question two, are there times when we should not give to Christians who are in need? Question three, should we ever give to non-believers who are in need? And question four, what did Jesus actually himself teach about giving to the poor and those who are in need? So today's sermon is going to be those first three questions. And what did Jesus teach in the poor is going to be its own entity, its own entity for sermon number three. So first question, are there any other times we should give to Christians who are poor and in need outside of those who have experienced natural disasters and crises like Ecuador, which we saw, I don't know if you saw the news, but there was an Ecuador had a earthquake, Japan had an earthquake, and the Syrian refugee crisis, things like that. Are there any other times we should give? The answer is yes. And the first category would be widows and orphans. Widows and orphans. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a lot of scripture devoted to giving to widows and orphans. And one of the commentators I was uh, listening to said that there's approximately 80 direct references to widows and orphans in the Bible. So there's a lot of material given to widows and orphans. And what's interesting is one of God's titles in the Old Testament is in Psalm 68.5, he calls himself the protector or the defender of the widow. So God's self-proclaimed title from his own mouth to the prophets is, I'm a defender of the widow. How did, how did he do that? Well, there's a couple of practical ways he defended the widow and, and the orphan as well. Uh, a couple ways. First of all, he told Israel to, um, to take care of them, and it was their responsibility for provisionary care. So uh, one way was at harvest time. So at the harvest time, um, God gave them specific instructions in terms of, in terms of using the use of the land. They were to leave, leave leftovers for the widows and orphans so that they could eat and get food. Um, for the poor in particular, in Leviticus 23:22, they were to when they plowed the fields, they were to leave the corners. So they cut a plowed in a circle, and the corners were for the, the poor and the needy. So there were specific instructions for a farmer to allow the widow, orphan, and the poor and needy to eat. 
Um, anyone who exploited them and abused them was, gonna, was severely punished. You were, uh, they were to be killed for exploiting a widow or an orphan. Exodus 22.22. So if you were caught abusing a, a widow or an orphan, your life would be taken in the Old Testament. So don't mess around. That's how God was a defender of the widow and orphan. And what's interesting about Israel, too, is that in the Old Testament, whenever they obeyed and protected an enemy, sorry, obeyed God, enemy nations would, be, would protect them. Sorry. Whenever they obeyed God, enemy nations would be protected. God would protect Israel from enemy nations so that they wouldn't uh, be hurt. However, whenever they disobeyed God, he would allow enemy nations to come in and, and, and punish them, like Babylon and Syria. Now, what's interesting is when Babylon came in to take out Israel, um, Judah, specifically in like around 586 BC, one of the reasons was, was not just for idolatry, for worshiping other gods. It was their failure to be just in areas of other than, they, yeah, it was their failure to be just in other areas of national life. One area in particular, treatment of, of the widows and orphans. And for this, you have to see this. Uh, it's, very, it's a worth-noted verse, because uh, we're going to come back to it later. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 10, 1 to 3. Isaiah 10, 1 to 3 says this, Woe to those who enact evil statutes, and to those who constantly record unjust decisions, so as to deprive the needy of justice, and rob the poor of my people of their rights, so that the widows may be their spoil, and they may plunder the orphans. Now what will you do in the day of punishment, and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your, your wealth? In other words, um, one, of, uh, one of the implic uh, implications to Israel for, for um, the, um, these uh, enemy nations like Assyria and Babylon coming in, were strictly this idea of uh, their failure to defend the widow and orphan outside of idolatry. So why was he so adamant about the treatment of them? Well, what do widows and orphans have in common? What they have in common is for no fault of their own, it's not from sinful lifestyle choices, for no fault of their own, they have no means of providing for themselves. They're helpless. You might have a husband who died at war, you might have parents who died of sickness, they were completely dependent on other people for survival. In the New Testament church, um, the early church faced a crisis with widows. In Acts chapter 6, because the church was growing so big, there was problems over widows. Um, the local native Jewish uh, widows were getting preferable, preferential treatment in the church over the, the non-born native Jews who were living in Jerusalem. So they were like the Greek the Hellenistic or Greek Jews that had come into Jerusalem or are living there now. And the problem was is that the native Jews were getting first dibs with food rations. And so the early church in the New Testament had to deal with this crisis and make sure that everyone was taken care of equally. But here's where it might surprise you. You might think, well, that we are to take care of every single widow and orphan that exists. And we have, to be, we have to think in those terms, in terms of uh, like going after all of them because God said. What's interesting is that just like two weeks ago sermon, the, the priority is still the Christian widow and orphan. Go back to Isaiah chapter 10 and look what he says in verse 2. 
He says, so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights. My people. Here's what, they weren't, here's what Israel was not doing. They weren't taking care of the widow and the orphan, the Canaanite people. They were taking care of their own, the people within the Israelite community. They were to take care of the widow and the orphan in their own community. And what's even more crazy is in Isaiah chapter 9. Even the defender of the widow, God himself, who gave himself that title, and who would, was punishing Israel for failure to take care of them, said this, said this in chapter 9, verse 17. Actually, I'll go back to 16. It says, For those who guide this people are leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are brought to confusion. Therefore the Lord does not take pleasure in their young men, nor does he have pity on their widows and their orphans. This is God speaking. For every one of them is godless and an evildoer. God himself in chapter 9 of Isaiah says, I'm not taking care of these Israelite orphans and these widows because they're godless and an evildoer. They've turned away from me and they're worshipping other gods. God makes a distinction between widows and orphans in terms of when to take care of them, when they are willing to go His way and sit under His, his um, or in spiritual relationship with Him. But when they decide to rebel against Him, He says, I'm even set against them. That might be massive for you. That might be the first time you've ever heard that teaching. <laughs> I know for me it was a massive discovery because I always thought that it was a, it was a plight for every single person. As what's the application for us then? As believers, we need to consider this carefully because just because a widow and orphan is in need doesn't mean we need to jump into meeting their long-term care and needs. We need to look, for example, at orphanages set up by Christian organizations to see if they have a gospel first priority. Again, if we're going to make long-term financial contributions to these places, we have to make sure that again, that we're taking care of our own first. There has to be a priority. Is there anyone else that we should consider within the Christian community? Yes, I'd say for sure, besides widows and orphans. That's people who have fallen on hard times or have had misfortunes happen to them. What's interesting about the widow and orphan is, again, for no fault of their own, something tragic has happened to them and they're dependent on others. That principle, principle can apply to other Christian people. People who have fallen on hard times have no fault of their own. I'll give you some example. We know a family in Pine Ridge Church right now. The husband got extremely sick. He's been sick for two years. He lost his job. Our church's responsibility, come in, collect funds, start taking care of provisionary needs for them. Someone loses their job on this economy. Let's say one of you guys, this will give you comfort. And again, this is as, a, as your pastor, I would make sure this happened. <laughs> If one of you lost your jobs in this economy and you're in trouble, I would want our church to come together to take care of you to make sure you can get through the hard times. I would hope the same if I lost mine. <laughs> if any of you guys got in a car accident? Yeah, <laughs> maybe the, yeah, that's true. I'll meet you somewhere else then. Uh, Car accident, one of you guys got in a car accident and you got like severely hurt and you couldn't take care of medical bills because of, of weird things that have happened. Again, we'd come around to the church and we'd help take care of you. 
It was interesting because after teaching two weeks ago from John and Matthew about the Christian brother and sister being a priority, I was just reading last night just for, for pleasure in James chapter 2, and this theme jumped out at me again. It's like I can't escape it now that we've discovered it. It's all over the Bible, but we just maybe didn't recognize it before. Listen to James. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead by itself. If we see a Christian brother or sister in need or is poor, and we don't do anything, James says you have dead faith. Okay, so that's the first question taken care of. Are we to give to other Christians in need? The answer is yes. Widows and orphans, as long as they're under, they're, they're dedicated to God in their, in their lives, as a Christian priority, uh, Christian focus. And secondly, to those within our community that are also in need. Question two, are there times when we should not give to Christians who are poor or in need? And the answer is yes. There's <laughs> uh, a church, uh, actually, um, Hey, Jeff, can you look this up for me? That's 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 to 12. 6 through 12? Yeah, 2 Thessalonians 6 through 12. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were there with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Right. Okay. Are there any times when we should not give to a Christian brother who's poor in need? Yes. When they refuse to work. If they're lazy and idle. So if you're a Christian brother or sister, and, you don't, and you're not working, and, yet you, and you have need, then we're not to come around you and support you, because you're actually living a life contrary to God. He designed it and created us to work, and here we are being lazy. And people who are, they're not like widows and orphans, because widows and orphans are dependent on other people for survival. This person in the, in the, in the Thessalonica church is capable of work, they just refuse not to. And they're, they're sponging off of other people. They're not like lame and deaf and blind people and so on. So if these people end up poor and in poverty, it's because of their foolishness and of an undisciplined life. And our approach to them is church discipline, not relief efforts. Where's the church discipline? Verse 14 of the same passage. Jeff didn't, I'd ask him not to go this far, but here's the, here's the, here's the discipline. If anyone does not obey instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. All right, pretty clear church discipline. Don't have anything to do with them. Let them, let them dis, disassociate. 
Is there any other category then when we're not to give to Christians? I would say yes, there's another category. And that is when it requires someone else to co-sign in order for, you, for your needs to be met. When would we not give to a Christian? Or when, they, when they have to have a co-signer to meet their financial demands. Proverbs 22:26. Stuart, can you turn there? And, hey, Laurel, can you turn to Proverbs 6, 1 to 5? Uh, Proverbs 22, 26 and 27. And Proverbs 6, 1 to 5. You can read those out. It says, uh, Do not be among those who give pledges among those who become sureties for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? Proverbs 6, 1 to 5, Laurel. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger. If you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go hasten and feed urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Is that it? Yeah, yeah. What's the, what's, the, what's the common theme in that proverb? He's saying this, if a person needs something or desires something financially and doesn't have the money for it, and someone comes in behind him and says, I'll guarantee the money for you, the proverb is saying this, why would you do that? Because you're basically going to be co-signing and therefore um, taking responsibility for their debt. And what happens if that first person defaults, it all comes down on you. You're responsible for it. And so the, the wisdom of God from Proverbs is this. Why would you go and do that? I love the one that Laurel read because it talks about like fleeing like a gazelle. Like <laughs> you see how fast uh, they can run. He's basically saying, run away from that opportunity because you just don't want to get yourself ensnared where someone else is going to be forced to pay. If a person doesn't have the finances in the first place to accomplish what they want, then likelihood of use co-signing would mean that they're probably going to default. Because if you have to co-sign in the first place because they don't have the finances, then, then there's pretty high chances that that, that person is going to make you responsible for their debts. Um, there are many times when people have co-signed and nothing's happened. It's worked out well. But I, I, the more I teach biblical finances to people and I talk about co-signing, I get example after example after example. And I'm building stories of people's cases for practical application for some of these things, but uh, I've heard multiple stories now over the last few years about people's co-signing nightmares. And I'll tell you this, as a dad, I will never co-sign for my kids. If they, if they go to get a house, I'll never co-sign for them. There are, there are practical ways as a parent you can give, you can, allow, you can enable your children to get uh, homes without co-signing. There's other biblical wisdom on how to do that. But never, so in other words, I would never co-sign for somebody as a Christian to help them meet their needs. What other category? One more category. I, would, uh, I think we should be careful not to gift anyone who's in poor need when they're currently embracing unbiblical financial principles. When they're currently, not a, they're currently embracing unbiblical financial principles. Again, if you ever go through the Proverbs literature, we have different categories of this. But I want to talk about one in particular. One in particular. And I'll say this straight, up, straight off the cuff. I know this is a very sensitive issue, maybe for some of you. 
And I'm speaking as one who's been in this position. So when I'm speaking, I'm not trying to target any of you or make you feel uncomfortable. The issue is I was this guy about eight years ago. And it, was, it wasn't until I got God's wisdom and finances that things changed. So I'm in the same boat as some of you are. But here's the principle that a lot of us fail to do. That's when we as Christians become the lender slave. The lender slave. Um... Roger, can you read 22.7 of Proverbs? Just like your Bible's open, so I figured I'd pick on you. Proverbs 22.7. That won't throw my life under the bus. <laughs> You're going with the Inside joke. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is a servant to the lender. Yeah, the rich rule over the poor. It's interesting he calls it rules over. What does it mean to be a lender slave? Basically, in our, in our culture, I would say this. It's basically um, when, the creditor is, when the creditor were to ask you to pay in all your debt, that your net worth would be below zero. Okay? So you've got, uh, yeah, like if you look at all your assets and all your debt, your uh, liabilities... And if the creditor called in their money, that you're like that you have a zero, uh, you'd be below zero in your net worth. In other words, it's a person who's got a lot of debt and has by no and is basically indebted or is being ruled by the person who's lent them the money. You know what's crazy about the Old Testament? Debt was dealt with completely different than the Canada. Do you, do you know what would happen to someone who was who was a lender slave in biblical in biblical context in the Old Testament? Yep. You're sold into slavery. So if you had a debt to pay and you couldn't pay it back, you automatically became the person's slave. Now, don't think of whips and chains and like black slavery. It's not like that. God was very gracious in the way slavery was to be handed out. In fact, even in the New Testament, slaves and masters, the word is employee-employer. So you became the employee of the person. So if you owed somebody $50,000, you worked for that person for free until that debt was completely paid off. But you know what? Think of it like an internship. It's a good thing because after a year or two of learning that, you'd go back into the, if you wanted to be released from that, that master, now when that release came, you'd go back into the world with a lot of good biblical principles for how to do life. In Canada, there is no such thing as working for the person that you're indebted to. You can declare bankruptcy and all sorts of things, and it's forgiven. You might be forgiven in terms of our laws, but God remembers that. You're still accountable to God for those, those numbers. So again, we don't have that situation, but we would become a slave in the Old Testament. But here's the problem with most debt. And here's why I want to talk to you about this issue of sensitivity. Most debt is an issue of coveting. There's a difference between being in debt because of natural disasters and about things, but a lot of debt is because of sinful choices and our eyes are bigger than our wallets. And this is what the Colossians says about coveting. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So yes, you might not bow down and worship uh, like a Baal idol or a Buddha statue or whatever, but you might worship the pocketbook, which is evident by the, the debt patterns. 
It's coveting. It's desiring things that, that, uh, that you really want, but you actually can't afford them. So if someone if a Christian has embraced this life pattern, then I would not give to them in those circumstances because all I'm doing is enabling them to continue down the greed path and the coveting path and leading them down to a greater sin. Here's the thing though. Here's when I would give to somebody in debt. If they recognize it, repent of it, and change their life, and then don't embrace that pattern anymore, if they move in that direction toward going God's way to get out, then I would probably consider helping them out. Again, Old Testament, you didn't have that luxury. You worked for the guy till it was gone. But if I saw somebody in their family like making a moves towards repentance in this area, and they were still in debt, I would probably help them out. So it's not a slam dunk, yes I'd help, yes I'd, well no I won't. I think you look at each situation carefully and examine it. And again, I, I was in this position uh, years ago. I was, I was tens of thousands in the hole and had to come around and, and, and repent of this myself. And if I had biblical counsel eight years ago, whatever it was, I would have never been in debt in the first place. But I just was like a lot of us, I just had no guidance and didn't know, know any different. All right, let's, uh, let's leave it at that. Last question then. Should we ever give to non-believers who are poor or in need? We've dealt with the Christian community over and over. And I would say, sure we can. 1 Timothy 6.17. Instruct those who are rich in this world to be generous. Instruct those who are rich in this world to be generous. Notice the instruction in that verse says this. Christians are to be known as generous people. It doesn't say this, you're to give it all away. It doesn't say, uh, uh, instruct those who are rich in this world to give it all away and live poorly. It says, instruct those who are rich to be generous. Christians are to be known as generous giving people. If you're known as a Christian, as a stingy, miser, Scrooge, kind of hold on tight guy or girl, God doesn't want that. He wants us to be known as generous. We have a generous God. <laughs> he laid down his life for us and gave his son for us to redeem us from sin. Why would he not want us to copy that in terms of how we handle our finances and be generous as well? Now I'm going to leave you with a story which I think is really sad um, but it's an unfortunate truth and hopefully uh, if this you feel this is you uh, then hopefully this will be encouraging to you to think okay i got to change my life here. I know a guy in um, uh, I won't mention his name just for, because of uh, privacy issues, but I know a pastor in Moose Jaw, all right? And he's part of our sort of network of ministers, and I've met him before. And uh, he was telling a story to Dan, and Dan told a story to me. He said that the waitresses in Moose Jaw hated working on Sundays. Can anyone guess why? Christians, they wouldn't tip. Exactly. The worst tippers in the waitressing industry were Christian people. When I, I want, you know what, even right now, I want to bury myself in a hole when I hear that. Doesn't that make you feel, like, sad? <coughs> Christian people, the waitresses dreaded Sunday because these people were going to tip so poorly. They couldn't wait till the Christians left so the non-Christians could come in and give them all their money. It's backwards, people. Backwards. Christians, if we're stingy tippers, it's because we're fixated on wealth. And we're fixated on the fact that we think that we are in control of the finances. 
We are stewards of God's money. We are not, it's not our money, it's God's money. We are to steward and manage it. Christians are not to be known as stingy, tight, tightwad, uh, like Scrooge people. <laughs> They're not. We are to be known as generous people. So don't make your waiter or waitress, like if they know you're a Christian, please, for the sake of the love of the Lord, give them what's due. Now again, that has to be, if it's crappy service, I get it. <laughs> but I mean, for the most part, we don't get really bad service. I would, I would, but it would be wonderful if our church came into like, if, if, if we did this, we don't, but if we did, if we went out for lunch every day after church, if the waitress at uh, Riley's or Boston Pizza or more like, man, I can't wait till Genesis House comes in because my tips are the greatest I get all week. That's a testimony to God. Same goes for your hairdresser and, uh, and uh, like whoever, like you just like, don't be, don't be stingy. Don't be cheap. Okay. Yeah, that's enough for today. Question four. First Timothy six seventeen. Question four will be: What did Jesus say about giving to the poor and those in need when he was alive? And we're going to deal with that as a third sermon in the in the three part series. So, as usual, let's have our time of dialogue, and uh, we open up to the floor to take questions.